Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. So we're going to uh, pick back up today, and for the rest of the church year, we'll be doing, um, going back to the sermon series that we started a month or so ago on the story of the Bible. And what we're doing is we're reading the Bible from beginning to end. We're not re reading everything in the Bible, of course, we don't have time for that. But we're reading the Bible as one complete story, not as a series of disconnected stories, but as one complete story from beginning to end, because that's actually the way it was written. I know that a lot of us, uh, you know, we had the Bible taught to us in Sunday school as little uh, isolated stories. That's not the way uh, it was written, though. It was written as one complete story. It meant to be read that way, like a book. And so that's what we're doing. We're kind of looking at the framework. And just to reset where we've been very quickly, God created this beautiful universe. He did it because he loves, and love recreates itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit longing to recreate the, it, it, this incredible relationship that the three of them had, create human beings and put them on this wonderful, beautiful uh, 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 universe. And humans managed to screw the whole thing up by rebelling against God and trying to be God themselves. And that introduces brokenness uh, and sin into the world. God does not say, okay, that's, well, it's too bad, you know, I'm going to have to blow the whole thing up and maybe take a few of you up to heaven someday. God comes up with a plan to fix everything, to fix everything. All the bad things done on, uh, uh, come undone in the end. And the first step in this plan is he calls this guy named Abraham. And th this is maybe, I, I know that I'm supposed to say uh, that uh, uh, Jesus is the most important thing in the Bible. That's definitely true, but you can't understand who Jesus is and what he does if we don't understand Abraham. Who Abraham is and the promises God made to him are gonna have ramifications all the way through the New Testament, and we'll see that as we go along. Last time I talked to you about the story of the Bible, I talked about these promises that God made to Abraham. God chose this guy, not because he was a good guy, he actually wasn't a, a great guy, but God chose him and said, I'm gonna give you land, I'm gonna give you offspring, and most importantly, I'm gonna bless you. Which, do you remember what this meant? This has been a month or so ago now. When God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, he doesn't mean I'm gonna give you a new car or I'm gonna give you lots of fantastic friends. He means I'm going to rescue you. The curse that Adam and Eve 
brought on the universe in the garden, the curse that you and I have participated with Adam and even perpetuating, God says, I'm gonna reverse that curse. I'm gonna turn that curse into blessing. And Abraham, I'm gonna do it through you and your offspring. He doesn't really tell Abraham how he's gonna do it. He just tells Abraham, I'm gonna do it through you. All right, before we move on, there's one more thing we gotta do in the story of Abraham. And that's talk about how does Abraham know it's true? How does God say, this is guaranteed, Abraham? That's what we wanna talk about today, right? So Psalm 111, turn over there. It's a psalm that we read a few minutes ago. It's a fantastic psalm. I'm not gonna read it again, but there's two parts to this psalm. There's two parts to Psalm 111. And there's a, 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 a center part. There's a, some really good meat. And then the, the second part is actually separated in two. There's a part at the beginning and a part at the end that function as bread for this sandwich. And the, and the sandwich is this. I'll describe the sandwich to you. Who God is, is the meat of the sandwich. Verses three through nine, it's a wonderful description of the character of God and what God does for his people, what God does for his creation. Verses one and two and verses uh, 10, the, the, the bread of the sandwich, talk about what should our response be as people who know God, all right? So I wanna work quickly through this. The first part, let's look at the meat of the sandwich. I'm just, and there's, there's way more in here than we have time to unpack, but I'm gonna give you four things. This isn't everything in there, but I'm gonna give you four things about who God is. First of all, God is powerful. Verse three says God is full of, full of splendor and his work is majestic. The first line of verse three says, look down at verse six. God has shown his people the power of his works. God is powerful. God is not inept. God is not some old man sitting in the sky who's kind of reacting to everything that's going on and trying to keep up with the current events and decide, well, how are we gonna handle this crisis? How are we gonna handle the war in Ukraine? How are we gonna handle global hunger? Right, let's come up with a plan. God is all powerful and whatever he wants to do, he does. That's who God is. Second thing, God is holy. Look at the very end of verse nine. Holy and awesome is his name. God is holy. When we say God is holy, we mean that God is absolutely separate from us. He's not like us. He's completely different. He's not temporary. He's not limited. He's not fallible. Maybe most importantly is he's not immoral. He's not sinful. He's not, in other, in other words, he's not selfish. He's not turned in on himself. Um, he doesn't lie. He's completely faithful in his relationships. God is holy. Third thing, God is faithful. Look at verses seven and eight. This is a part of his holiness, of course. Seven and eight kind of emphasize this, though. The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. When God talks, you can rely on him. He doesn't lie. Verse eight, they are established, these precepts, these trustworthy precepts are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. When God says what he's gonna, unlike the pagan gods of the ancient world, unlike the gods of today that you and I worship, the gods of money, sex, and power, God keeps his promises. He doesn't say to us, I can fulfill you and then bail, which every other God in the universe is going to do. God never does that because he's faithful and just. Uh, uh, fourth thing, God is gracious and merciful. This is into uh, verse four. The Lord, it, was, it just says the Lord is gracious and merciful, right? It's echoing this Exodus 34 promise that God makes to Abraham. God is gracious. What does that mean? It means that God, does, that, that God gives to us good things that we don't deserve. That's what gracious means. God gives to us good things that we don't deserve. He's also merciful. What does that mean? It means that God does not give to us bad things that we do deserve. That God is gracious and merciful means that he takes upon us, takes upon himself 
all of our badness and gives us all of his goodness. So we get good things we don't deserve. We don't get the bad things that we do deserve. God is gracious and merciful. Okay, that's the meat of the sandwich. And that's it. We totally gave that short shrift. We could spend a long time unpacking each one of those verses, but we don't have time for that. Let's look at the bread of the sandwich. How should we respond? Face to face with this incredible God, what should our response be? Verses one and two describe a response of praise and delight. Praise the Lord, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Coming in contact with this incredible God stirs up delight. Delight, it makes us happy. It causes us to praise, it causes us to give thanks. It causes us to wanna dig deeper into it studied by all who delight in them. It causes us to want to delight in them, to take pleasure in them. But the second thing is this. Go down to the, the bottom half of the sandwich, uh, the bread, the bread of the sandwich. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. It also causes us to fear him. It causes us, verses 1 and 2, to delight in him. It causes us, verse 10, to fear him. And both of these things go together. In fact, let me, I'll, I'll just say this. I, I, I talk to those of you, I, I talk to a lot of you sometimes and you'll say something like this. I should talk to myself sometimes and I say, how can I know that God is there? How can I know that I'm experiencing God? And the answer in the Bible frequently is, one way that you know that you are experiencing God, that you are knowing God, is if you delight and fear simultaneously if you delight in fear simultaneously. All right, so how do you take delight in fear at the same time? That's hard, it's, it's, it's hard to fit into our heads, right? Like, I take delight in frozen custard, but I'm not afraid of it. Maybe I should be, in a certain health sort of sense. But I'm not afraid of it. I fear snakes, but I don't take delight in them. How can you delight and fear something at the same time? Now, um, I break this illustration out once a year. So if you've heard it before, you know it's coming. We discussed this in the community group I attend this week. And so we've already kicked this around with them. So this is old hat for them. Um, for those of you who hadn't heard it, uh, here you go. For those of you who have heard it, it's a, maybe a boring refresher. Several years ago, uh, we drove out to the Grand Canyon. It's, uh, uh, we, we drove out west. Um, and we stopped at the Grand Canyon and my kids, it's, uh, it's been seven or eight years ago now. So uh, my kids were all under 10. And uh, no, they weren't. Uh, it doesn't matter. That's not important. I have kids. That's the important part of the story. And uh, so we go to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been there, you know, if you go to the South Rim, right, at the visitor's entrance, these big, like, fences there, you know, and, like, the, the tourists are crammed up there uh, looking out. But if you just drive, like, two or three minutes each way, you can just park there and get out, and there's nothing. It's, there's no fence, there's nothing, there's no, not a lot of people around. Every once in a while, there's a sign that says you need to be careful. Several times a year, people die from falling into the Grand Canyon. So we went there, and of course, if you, for those of you who've been to the Grand Canyon, especially the first time you've been there, I imagine I've only been there once. It's, it's unbelievable. You can't believe that something like this exists. And um, just overcome with, like, wonder at the beauty of this. And it, it definitely is. It's, it inspires emotions, even in people who don't normally have emotions 
at things like this. And all, you, know, you just have to be there to understand this. But I, can't, I, I will refer you to, uh, to Ron Swanson's rules of crying. There are two times when it's appropriate to cry, at a funeral and at the Grand Canyon. That's it. And, and there's something, I know that's stupid and it's, it's not a good idea, but it does tap into something. There's something about the Grand Canyon that is so, the, the delight you experience, it's not even really in the same category as frozen custard. It's not that it's like frozen custard, but a lot better. It's completely different. It's awe-inspiring. But it's also fear-inspiring. And Angela spent the time there telling the kids, get down. And Angela herself was like, hunched over like somehow that's going to save her if she falls off, you know? And kids, you sit right there. Do not move. Do not move. Because it's scary. You know that it, one misstep and you could die, right? And that's really, I mean, again, that's a once a year illustration. That's probably the only analogy I have for what it's like to delight in something and fear something simultaneously. All right. Now, for our purposes here, this, I hope you understand that. Especially if you've been there, you'll understand that. For my purposes here this morning, here's what I want you to think about. If I try to tell you, you should be afraid of the Grand Canyon and you should delight in it simultaneously, I, th- 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 I don't have words, even pictures, that can stir that up in you. You're, I can't show you a picture and you'd be like, whoa, that's scary. Oh, my heart's pounding. I can't show you a picture of the Grand Canyon that makes you cry. The only way that you will simultaneously experience the delight and the fear of standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon is to go to the Grand Canyon. And sometimes people are like, well, how am I supposed to fear and love God at the same time? And the answer is, you just got to go there. You just got to go. There's nothing I can say in this sermon that will intellectually stir that up in you. If you're not fearing, let me say the positive. Let me say the positive. You will know that you are experiencing God when before his face, you are both in fearful awe of him and intense delight. Intense delight. And both of those things come together. He's not evil. He's not a snake. He is not to be scared of in the same way that we're scared of snakes, our car crashes, our heights. He's not frozen custard. He's not just fun. And I feel, you know, I just feel so good when I'm with him. It's both of these things, intense delight, intense awe and reverence. And awe and reverence is a great word if you can just intensify it to mean more than like, well, you know, I have, I, I have reverence for people who are smart. I have reverence for my parents. It's more than that. I, I delight in people who are smart. I delight in my parents. It's more than that. And the only way that I can tell you how to experience that is you need to come into the presence of God. It's the only way to do it. No amount of like intellectually trying to stir it up in yourself or like going into a dark room and like really I'm trying, I'm going to try to love God today. I'm going to try to fear God today. You just, you just have to go into his presence. All right, more in a minute on how exactly are we going to do this? Because the question is there. It's, in some ways, it's only kicking it down the road. Okay, so how do you come into God's presence, right? How do you know that you're in a relationship with God if you're experiencing awe and fear of him? And by the way, Christians frequently don't experience this. I'm not at all saying that if, at this moment right now, you aren't experiencing awe and fear. You're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that knowing God and being in his presence will include this, though. It will include this. But of course, there's always times when we're, when we're cold and calloused. And I'm kind of hinting around here at the, at the second point of the sermon. But if I say you just, we need to fear and love God, what I'm doing is I'm kicking the can down the road because it, the question is how do you fear and love God? 
You come into his presence. Okay, well, how do you come into his presence? And um, the psalm's gonna answer that with the word covenant. Covenant. The key here is covenant. Not a covenant that you're making, but a covenant that God has made with you. Specifically, a covenant that God's made with Abraham. But through Abraham and through Jesus, especially Abraham's great son, with you. So, verse five, God provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. God, this is a reference to the covenant that we just read about in Genesis 15. A few minutes ago. I know it's a weird story. We'll come back to the weirdness in just a second. God makes a covenant promise to Abraham and he never, ever forgets that. He never bails on it. That same covenant is he's made with you. You are children of Abraham. Those of you who belong to Jesus Christ, you are daughters and sons of Abraham. And because of that, you are in Jesus Christ and that covenant applies to you too. God's made a promise with you. He will never go back on it. And this is just, he doesn't just remember the promise. Look at verse nine. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. God has commanded his covenant forever. He's commanded it. He's actively engaged in it. He's actively pursuing it. He's actively keeping it. This covenant that he's made with you. Okay, so what, what is the covenant? We've got to go back to Genesis 15, which is it's in your bulletin here. And I'm not going to read all of it. But in Genesis 15, Abraham has an experience of God where he gets promises made to him that are certainly delightful. You are going to have offspring. You are going to be blessed. You are going to get this land. But at the same time, there are promises that are made. It's an experience of God's presence that stirs up fear in Abraham. Look at verse uh, 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. There's no way Abram can have this experience. There's no way Abraham can have this experience without both the dread and the delight of being in God's presence. All right, now, I'm not gonna read this again. Let me just refresh your memory of what's going on in this story in Genesis 15. It's about a covenant. It's about a covenant that God makes with Abram. A covenant is... A, 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 a unilateral promise that puts people, parties, in relationship with each other. So I can promise you that I'm going to, you know, you, you need some help doing lawn work. I promise you I will show up Tuesday to help. That's a promise. It's not a covenant because it doesn't put us into a relationship. It's what we typically call like marriages, covenants. Because they're promises, they're vows that are made, but it's vows that are putting these two people into this permanent relationship. God makes a covenant vow to Abram that I'm going to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to give you land, offspring, and blessing. And then there's this weird ceremony where Abram like, is in this, it's kind of in, in a vision, but it's kind of real too because God told him beforehand to cut up these animals and to take these animals and chop them in half and make like a hallway with these dead animal parts. All right, it's not anything that you and I would do. It's not a part of our culture. But Abram knew exactly what was going on because it was a part of his culture. Now, you're just gonna have to hang on here. Um, uh, trust me for the next few minutes and then you can go look at Wikipedia after, the, after this and, and check it all out and see if it's true or not. Because Wikipedia, that's, it'll verify what I'm saying. This is kind of a sad state when like a, a preacher of the Christian gospel has to appeal to Wikipedia to verify what he's saying. But in, in this case, it's true. Uh, I'm in the ancient world, we know about the way that political parties made covenants with each other. We have, it's, 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 they're not so much described in the Bible as just assumed in the Bible. 
because Abram knew all about it. Moses knew all about it. It was a part of their world. We actually, if you're interested, and like I said, go look on Wikipedia, uh, search Hittite Covenant. Hittite Covenant. We know a lot from the Hittites who were right around this area about what these look like. And it wasn't just the Hittites. Lots of people around here had these covenants, but the Hittites kept really good records, so we know about them. What a Hittite lord would do is frequently, if he wanted to make a political move, a maneuver that would benefit him, he would find a smaller, in the terms they were called a vassal, he would find a smaller party, like a smaller country compared to his bigger country, and he would go to them and say, I'm making a covenant with you. No, you're not allowed to, uh, this is unilateral, you're not going to debate this, I'm making a covenant with you, you have no choice. The terms of the covenant are this. You are going to pay me taxes. You are going to provide soldiers for my army. You are going to be loyal to me. You're going to let me know if there's any sort of sedition that's happening in your realm. In turn, I will provide faithfulness to you. I will defend you from all your enemies. I will make sure that your people don't starve. I will not break this promise to you. This is a covenant. It's a covenant. Uh, The Lord and the vassal would then be entered into covenant. Now, what we know from the Hittites is this. Sorry for the history lesson. What we know from the Hittites is this, is that these covenants would involve a weird ceremony where animals would be cut up. And in a couple of weeks, I'll show you, that this happens again in Exodus. Animals would be cut up and the people, the, the, the parties of this covenant would pass through the dead animal parts. In fact, a bonus material for you this morning. Whenever you're reading the, the Old Testament, in our English Bibles, and it said, the Lord made a covenant, or David made a covenant. The word made there, is, there's a Hebrew word for made. In Hebrew, though, it's actually the word cut. The Lord cut a covenant. Same thing here. Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. What does that mean? He cut up dead animals and walked through them. And what that says in the covenant ceremony is this. We're making promises to each other. We are now in a relationship. If you or I break the terms of this covenant, May we be cut up like this animal. May our, bud, may our blood be spilled on the ground like this animal. And God and Abraham make this covenant, and God does it. He goes through the middle of this. And what he's saying, Abram, you're going to be loyal to me. You're going to obey my law. And if you don't, may you be cut up. And I'm going to be loyal to you, and I'm going to defend you, God says. And if I don't, may I be cut up. And, and then you know the rest of the story. Abram's not faithful to covenant. A couple chapters after chapter 15, and he's betraying his wife when they're traveling. You know, he tells the, 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 uh, the governor of the region they're traveling in, she's not really my wife because he knows that he's going to get killed if the guy finds out that that's his wife and he wants her. So he lies. He does all kinds of bad things. He breaks covenant. And according to the terms of the covenant, what should happen to him? Like the animals in Genesis chapter 15, Abram should be cut up. And that's the terms. God, is God ever faithless to the covenant? Does God ever break loyalty with it? Never, not one time. But what happens in the story? Abram survives and God says, you're still my guy. But God himself takes on the covenant punishment. God himself becomes a human being so that his body can be cut up in order to preserve the covenant. God doesn't break the covenant, he preserves the covenant, but he does so by he himself taking on the covenant curse, by he himself paying, by having his body cut up, by having his blood shed, and then rising from the dead, thus preserving the covenant and keeping it. 
So now here's the question. The final question will be done. How can you know that God is for you? How can you have a relationship with God? How can you experience the presence of God? How can you experience the kind of presence with God that stirs up both fear and wonder and delight and pleasure? Do you think he's hiding from you? Do you think he's playing some sort of game where he's like, I tell you people to worship me, and then I like disappear and I say, well, you know, come to church, maybe you'll find me. No, you didn't feel it today. Do you think he's cruel? Do you think he's some sort of like unjust judge who sits up there and says, I've been forced by these terms to forgive your sins, but if you could just leave me alone, that would be great. Or do you think that he offers himself to us in incredibly powerful ways through the blood of his son, Jesus? And do you think it's maybe just our fault because we ignore those ways? Do you think that God, maybe it's this, maybe God has said, I am for you. I am willing to die for you to be in a relationship with you. I will speak to you in my word. And maybe it's us who don't ever read our Bibles. We're like, is God really for me? Maybe it's us. Maybe it's not him. So you see, the, the, the answer to the question of how can you know you're in a relationship with God is not anything that, I can't be like, well, here's, you know, you just need to be a great mystic or a great theologian or a great philosopher. If you can just figure out the deep truths of whether God exists or not, then you can really know. It's actually, you don't need to do anything. God made the covenant. We broke the covenant. God paid the covenant curses to keep the covenant. And now he's right here with you right now. And what we can do is we can, we can bathe ourselves in his word. We can come to the rail and say, this is God for me. And when we do that, when we come face to face with God, it's like, although way better, way more powerful, it's like taking a trip to the Grand Canyon and experiencing what it's like to stand in front of the most awe-inspiring, fearful, and yet most loving, delightful being in the entire universe. It's right there. It's not hard. There's no sort of magic formula. I don't even have three steps for you. Word and sacrament's kind of it. Well, word and sacrament's shorthand for God has decided to be in a relationship with you guys. Live in it. Embrace it. Enjoy it. Fear it. It's God for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for being a good, thank you for giving yourself to us. Thank you for, thank you for being the most powerful God in the world and the most loving God in the world. Thank you for being the most truthful God in the world. God, give us an experience of your presence that stirs in up us both this fear of yours, which, of you, which is the beginning of wisdom, but the delight in you, which comes from knowing that the most loving being in the universe, you, loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.